Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Just to sort of a, to give us a quick idea of, of, of where computing is going, you know, although the, the current uh, sort of energy consumption of, of computing devices is in sort of the two to five percent range if you take everything together, um, the key is that, that uh, the energy consumption of these uh, large data centers and computing devices in general is increasing exponentially. And uh, in fact, that's what we want because we want computing to, to pervade uh, all the different sectors and uh, increase energy efficiency. Um, just another perspective on this, uh, you know, uh, I think a, an environmental group looked at uh, server carbon production and equated it to about an, uh, an SUV. And uh, so if you, you take that and you take, combine that with uh, uh, the sort of exponential growth of, of computing, um, this is a, a, a serious problem for us to think about. And in particular, computing is, in fact, the fastest growing segment of carbon production. Um, in the various technologies that we look at. Um, so I represent an effort that is probably one of the most diverse groups uh, in the Institute, um, which ranges from uh, large-scale computing, data centers, uh, even work in buildings, all the way down to uh, sensors and embedded systems uh, and, and, and how that relates, how all these things relate to economic policy and um, the environment. Um, and as a result, this group of about 20 or more faculty um, has uh, strong relationships to other uh, groups in the Institute, uh, notably uh, the, the Buildings Group, which you'll hear from, uh, Silicon Photonics, which you'll hear from, and Electronics, and also the Economics and Policy um, uh, Center. Um, just to give you a sense of what we're shooting for here, the idea is that you know, we, want, uh, we, we see that computing is... is uh, becoming pervasive and uh, increasing exponentially, but we want to, to sustain that, right? And in order to sustain that, we sort of have our own version of this uh, more than Moore's law, uh, which is that we want to have exponential gains in energy efficiency, uh, both sort of at a technological level and at a system level. And that is how we're going to sustain this growth um, into the other sectors. Um, and for our center in particular, we have uh, some, uh, some of these uh, immediate goals of uh, several orders of magnitude uh, improvement in both computation and in, in critical issues such as cooling technologies. And I'll just break that down a little bit into some of our, of our specific efforts. Um, a short-term effort that we have is to look at uh, basically changing the way that we do computation. Right? Um, Luis Barroso is going to give, uh, I, I, I think, in his talk, some uh, very interesting results in how well Google has done in making their data centers very efficient. Um, but really, the remaining gains that we'll see are in how do we actually do the computation on those uh, servers and, and, and uh, computational devices um, once we've made those systems efficient. And, um, you know, we have at UCSB uh, a lot of expertise in uh, uh, large-scale data, databases, uh, operating systems, uh, virtualization, uh, uh, protocols, and uh, networking, and, um, and server architecture design. And uh, our initial 
effort is, is really actually inspired by Google and uh, things that Luis will talk about. And we're, we're looking at how to build systems that will scale their uh, energy consumption with the work that you give them. And it's something that uh, you'll hear more about, which is energy proportionality. Um, another strength of uh, UCSB is uh, in technologies and materials, which you'll hear a lot about. And uh, uh, the goal, one of the other goals of our center is to take those technologies and, and devices and to sort of fundamentally change the way computational devices are built. Um, and, uh, and here we're, we're looking at uh, leveraging things such as silicon photonics, such as uh, nanoscale devices, uh, we have in the California Nanoscience Institute. Um, uh, just as a, a simple example, um, we're looking at using silicon photonics to build very powerful uh, sort of data communication and data sort of permutation or rearranging kinds of uh, devices, which will f- sort of change the efficiency of, of difficult computations, such as uh, uh, sparse or regular uh, sparse matrix kinds of computations, uh, be able to transform those in an efficient way into much easier dense computations. And finally, we have a a fairly close tie to the um, uh, buildings, uh, sort of energy or dynamics group uh, that you'll hear from uh, in in looking at how to... uh, make cooling much more efficient in data centers, in particular looking at uh, uh, novel methods of managing um, airflow, in looking at uh, new technologies such as liquid or vapor cooling technologies, and integrating those technologies with how we do computation, um, sort of co-scheduling how, how we do the cooling with how we do the, where we put the computation. Um, another theme here, I think, is uh, that you'll see when you hear from the buildings group is that a data center is a building which is really sort of a, a, a nice controlled prototype of some of the building technologies that we'd like to see in buildings in general. And um, so our efforts here are, are really to build uh, uh, instrumentation and, and uh, 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 experimental infrastructure that allows us to sort of prototype some of the, uh, the things that we'd like to see in new buildings. And I think as a theme in general, all of these technologies that we look at, we'd like to see sort of percolate from sort of the data center level um, down to uh, commodity PCs, down to embedded systems, um, into the, the sort of the whole computing, um, pervasive computing model that we'd like to see. Okay, so um, we have two uh, very distinguished speakers in this session. Uh, Luis Barroso from uh, Google, who will talk about uh, large-scale data centers. Um, and we also have Feng Zhao, who's uh, uh, from Microsoft, who will sort of, I think, tie together not only work in large-scale data centers, but all the way down to embedded systems. I want to talk uh, more specifically about things I understand better, which is uh, the kind of infrastructure that's used to build large-scale Internet services, the impact they have on energy, uh, what kinds of things they work very well for, and what are the main opportunities we have today, both in terms of best practices as well as what are the uh, areas where new technology can really help. So first, I mean, I, I want to introduce uh, or at least confess my ignorance on sort of you know, the kinds of terminologies that are, that are around in this area. Uh, if you... Go to this uh, page at Google. I think it's called Google Insights for Search. You can actually look at the relative popularity of different search terms. And as you can see there, over time, grid computing is uh, falling out of uh, 
fashion, and uh, I guess cloud computing is probably the, uh, the word that everybody talks about, even though I think most people will confess they don't know what it means, and I'm among them. Um, uh, so I will try explicitly to avoid using that terminology. Um, and uh, sadly, though, utility compu computing never really took off, as you can see, sort of down at the bottom, because that's probably the one I understood what it meant best uh, a couple of years ago. <laughs> Uh, I was walking around uh, between a couple of Google buildings in Mountain View, and I saw this. Now, this is not Photoshopped. This is a manhole cover that has Google written on it. So this is the first insight I had into what this might actually mean. So instead of talking about these kinds of terminologies, I just want to set up some background. Uh, the way uh, I guess many of us at Google look at how computing is evolving is sort of in this direction in that we're more and more interested in these two sort of uh, ends of the computing spectrum. One of them are very small devices, things like your cell phones, things like the netbooks that Justin was talking about, and then things that look like big warehouses filled of com uh, with computers. And we, we, at Google, we like to use the term warehouse-scale computing, and that's you know, a building with uh, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of machines in there. And this is the infrastructure that's powering many of the internet services that I guess you use today, not just from Google, I guess, but from many other people. So it's interesting that uh, these are the kinds of things that we're migrating towards. Um, and when you look at, uh, at, at these two uh, ends of the spectrum, as we'll see a little bit later, the kinds of solutions, uh, especially for energy efficiency, but for design in general, may actually be different when you're talking about one device versus the other. So what I want to do today is breeze through the first part of my talk that's been covered very well by Justin and then uh, by Fred here just as well, in terms of setting out sort of the big picture in terms of you know, uh, where computing is in the in, in the uh, energy budget for the planet, for example. I don't think I'll need to spend much time on that. I want to talk a little bit more of something that uh, only now is becoming a little bit more uh, of a popular theme, which is the energy-related costs of computing. And uh, I'll go a little bit more into detail on that. But I want to spend most of my time at sort of the bottom here, which are w what are the efficiency opportunities we see today from where we stand and hopefully, you know, some of these things will be uh, new to you. So the study that uh, Justin mentioned, uh, Smart 2020, gives you sort of a framework for where computing is. Clearly, if you look at computing as a whole, uh, we are in the small percentage points of the planet's sort of budget, both in terms of emissions and in terms of the electricity budget. It is growing very rapidly, so that's something that we can't ignore, and it's at the level that we can't, you know, it's not negligible anymore. Uh, so in this study, they predict that uh, by 2020, uh, the carbon footprint of all of computing, and not just servers, and we're talking about everything here, could uh, grow up by another factor of two or so from where it is today. So it's clearly something we have to worry about. So the good news, as Justin sort of alluded to from that same study, is that Computing actually helps in a lot of other ways. Uh, in the LED lighting talk, you, you saw a, you know, a hint for that as well, or, or the set of talks, in how information technology actually can help you sort of make better use of resources and how you deploy them. So in this study, they estimate that you know, even though computing's footprint may grow a lot, 
the continuing application of computing technology across uh, many other industry segments can actually more than pay multiple times for its actually growth. There's no reason for us not to worry about its footprint, but it's certainly uh, something that puts things in perspective. Now, what's more interesting from where we stand is how do internet services and the kind of computing infrastructure that is used for internet services uh, fits into this whole picture. And it's interesting to see, uh, and then this slide gives you just an idea of it, and here we're looking at uh, grams of, of carbon uh, and doing sort of extrapolations, how this server-side computing model can be incredibly efficient for some kinds of applications, in this case, a search. In our best estimates, uh, a regular Google search will consume about a kilojoule or so, right? And, you know, uh, uh, most of us here, or many of us here at least, are adult males, and we're consuming about 8,000 kilojoules per day, just to put that in perspective. So, uh, and, and this includes not just the query itself, but all the work that's done in the background to fetch the data and index there and get it ready for it to be searched. So for some kinds of applications, this model of server-side computing and Internet services is incredibly efficient. Uh, another example I want to bring to you is something that's actually been released relatively recently. Uh, and that is uh, something that I think is incredibly important for, uh, uh, for humanity in general, which is uh, us being able to sort of understand people who don't speak our languages. Uh, and statistical machine translation is a technology that Google's been using for a while and has been very successful in terms of allowing computers to automatically translate between languages by just essentially using statistical methods, not knowing much about linguistics at all. It's a really interesting field. Uh, now, one of the characteristics of these things, and what's uh, in, in the past five years or so, I think researchers uh, at Google and elsewhere have been sort of great strides in this area, is that these models work well when the language models are incredibly large. So these are things that, uh, and, and you can see that as we grow the database of, of language phrases and translation pairs that we have powering these kinds of translation engines, the accuracy of the translations goes up tremendously. So this is clearly another example of one of these applications that will never work very well on a laptop computer or on a cell phone because both the data involved in it uh, is sort of too large for those devices and the computation that's involved in generating these translations is also enormous. Now, if this, these services are actually centralized in a few data centers somewhere else and the whole world sort of can take advantage of that, it's clearly a very effective way of delivering that. In this example, in case it wasn't clear, that's an email I received in Portuguese. And if you use Gmail today and you get an email uh, on a language that's not your default language browser, we're going to give you these links that are shown there that can translate that conversation to some other language, which these days might probably help you more in translating a lot of spam you get in, uh, in, in sort of different language than you're familiar with. But uh, for some of us who uh, exchange email in multiple languages, this is sort of an amusing and interesting thing to, to look at. You can also look at search results at Google these days, for example. And it's particularly useful for non-English speakers. Uh, we can automatically translate when, you, when we show a page of search results. If your best result is in German, it's as it turns out, uh, you can automatically translate that page by just clicking on the button, button that result. The kind of computation involved in that is clearly amenable to these large data centers. And it's much more efficient from a CapEx and from an energy budget as well to run it that way. 
Now, let me switch gears then and talk about more specifically about how energy has become an increasing factor in the cost of computing. And to set the stage, this is a picture of a Google data center, I think just before I arrived. Uh, and at that time, the, we bought some co-location space in this particular facility, which I think was in Santa Clara. Um, and in this facility, uh, back then, you, many of you might uh, recall, they sold data center or hosting space by the square footage. Right? And what that meant is that the amount of energy that computers could draw on a room like that, or how much they could heat up that room, was actually not an issue. It's really floor space was what determined cost. Right? Well, Google being a very frugal company, of course, they gave us so much square footage inside a cage, and we completely packed it in with equipment. And very soon, we had to deploy some sort of auxiliary uh, cooling technology in the form of... Uh, of uh, floor fans, as you could see. And soon afterwards, you, know, you stop hearing about people talking about uh, uh, data center space, if you will, resources by the square footage. And today, we talk about that by the watt, right? Essentially, that's what it means. And the reason is that is the following. If you take a data center and you build a data center from scratch that's sort of 10 megawatts and has, I don't know, uh, 100,000 square foot uh, of floor space, and you double that floor space, and then you see how that affected the final cost of the data center versus doubling the power capacity of that data center. The latter will have a huge influence on cost, and the former will have a relatively modest one. So data centers are priced by the watts, not by their square footage. So we hear a lot these days about the fact that the cost of energy, of powering a machine, for example, or a server in particular, is... Uh, uh, higher these days over its lifetime than the cost of hardware itself. I think many of us may have heard this. Uh, now, uh, the more I look at this, I can't find that to be true at all, right? And in this case, I made sort of a spreadsheet extrapolation using just data available on the web. This is not actually from Google's data centers. But if you go to the Dell website and you buy a, a modern computer there, Dell has a very nice power calculator as well. They'll tell you how much power that computer is going to consume. And you look at what costs to build a data center by the watt, and there's a, a bunch of uh, uh, sources of information about that there. You put together a picture that sort of looks like that, in that if you look at only these three components of total cost of ownership, the cost of you know, buying hardware itself, machines, servers, storage, etc., and that's in the green and the red part, the power bill, what you pay, you know, PG&E or, or, or Southern California Edison, I guess, in this case. Um, and then the cost of the facility, this is roughly how it breaks up. Right? So it's, it's very difficult to imagine a situation these days where the power cost, your, your monthly power bill itself, becomes dominant. Now, if you believe what I said before in that if you, if you look at costs of energy more broadly than that, the facility itself is an energy-related cost because we sell that by the watt. Now, in that case, the costs we're talking about begin to be sort of closer to half of that pie chart, right? So that today, from a cost standpoint, is the most compelling motivation for building energy-efficient data centers is because when you add all of these energy-related costs, then it's really significant already today. And clearly, the electricity part you know, tends to grow as well and, uh, as computers get faster and unfortunately haven't been getting energy efficient sort of necessarily as fast as we want them to to completely offset those uh, changes in performance. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. So 
Let me talk briefly about sort of the landscape of things that are available for us to uh, reduce that, uh, uh, that energy cost or all those energy-related costs. And I divide them in these two broad categories. One of them is what can we do with, with technology that exists, exists already today that we can just do better at? And there's a bag of tricks there, and I'm going to talk about a few of them. Uh, and then sort of towards the end are things that we really need new technology from a softer standpoint and harder standpoint. Now, that relates a lot to the work that uh, the center that uh, Fred Chong leads uh, is tackling as well. Uh, I want to go first over sort of the best practice side of things because it also relates back to some of the things uh, Justin was saying. One of the things we can do is reduce the uh, amount of energy used in data centers by reducing the uh, unnecessary um, energy conversions, right? And the example in, in distributing power to machines inside a data center. And the example that Justin gave you was, you know, using mostly DC data centers and with DC distributions and uh, using sort of fewer transformation steps along the way. Uh, we uh, actually took a slightly different uh, uh, approach to achieve sort of the same objective. And what I'm illustrating here is a Google server that we deployed around 2005 or so where we were able to completely eliminate the UPS room in a data center. For those of you who don't know, uh, the UPS room is essentially a room full of batteries, right? And typically, it's responsible for somewhere between 6 and 10% of energy loss in a data center, not to mention the capital expenses to keep that room there. And that room is there essentially for your data center to be up for 20 seconds or maybe 30 seconds or so. Uh, between the time that the grid goes down and your big diesel generator kicks in in the parking lot, right? That's all that room is doing for us. Now, what we did for that server is we got rid of that room, and we actually put a little, relatively inexpensive 12-volt battery at every server. Now, at doing that, we did the two things w with these servers. One of them is that the cost of that UPS bridge uh, uh, was actually very reduced because this is actually a volume part that we bought there. The other thing that happened was that we avoided an extra AC to DC and back conversion that's required to use a UPS. So we reduced the, the uh, energy conversion losses in the data center, a different way to achieve that same goal. Another thing that's sort of, again, in the best practice, I, I want to also reemphasize here that there's no crazy new technology here. It's sort of a clever approach, I would admit, Happily, since it was my team uh, at that time who was, who was uh, 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 responsible for, 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 these, uh, for these designs. I have personally nothing to do with them, but I have bright people working on them. Um, but no, no crazy technology there, right? Many laptops have architectures that actually look a little bit like that. Maybe not exactly. Right? The other thing you can do is be very careful about airflow and, uh, and the cooling infrastructure. In this case, I'm showing you a sketch of a container uh, full of computers that we deployed against around the same time in 2005. Uh, and in this case, that's a regular 40-foot shipping container that we retrofitted to put about sort of a 1,000 or so machines inside them. And we engineered that uh, to be just a very efficient computer room in which cold air didn't mix with warm air and temperature gradients between boards that are different heights were about the same. We managed also, because of that, to run the whole room, if you will, if you want to call it that room, a little bit warmer, 
And with that, we got a lot of efficiencies as well because we didn't need to use uh, as much energy in the cooling system in order to keep these running. The other thing that this type of architecture allowed us to do is not use chillers, which are sort of compressor-like things that are very energy inefficient. We use mainly evaporation-based units that allows us to have, you know, to also sort of do a little bit better. That's a picture of a data center that we built using that architecture, um, again, around 2005 or so. Now, what does that mean? Well, um, uh, Justin mentioned earlier today this embarrassing situation, which unfortunately I think is still sort of typical for data centers in that uh, for every, you know, watt of energy that enters the building, maybe only half of that ends up going to IT equipment, to servers and networks and storage. And half of them sort of gets lost to cooling and to um, power distribution, lighting, sort of the other types of loads. And you know, the, the data center industry has a very simple and very effective metric to, to, to judge the efficiency of data centers called PUE, power utility, power usage efficiency. Um, uh, and what that means is essentially that. You divide the total amount of energy entering a building by the total amount of energy that's actually consumed by things doing work for you, like computers. And that's the factor of two you talked about. And in this case, so the blue part here is the computing part. For every one watt used here, you have about 0.7 watts used in, uh, wasted in the cooling infrastructure for this data center. Another 0.22 watts that are losses in power distribution and conversion along the way, and then maybe sort of about 0.08 watts for other lighting and, and, and other loads. Now, again, without sort of crazy technology, the kinds of things I showed you earlier uh, from a data center design and server design space allowed us to get to PUEs not of a factor of two, but about 1.16 in this particular Google data center. And so you went from a, from a chart like that to another one like that. So losses in a data center were reduced, in this case, by a factor of six with respect to uh, what's generally considered industry norm. So it's you know, very impressive. Uh, but again, a lot of attention to detail, a lot of good engineering, nothing particularly earth-shattering in terms of technology, right? And we disclosed actually uh, about a month and a half ago in a summit we hosted at Google, and you can find that online if you just search on Google or, any, or your favorite search engine for uh, efficient data centers or efficient data center summit, and you find a whole day of videos in which we go into a lot of detail on, on how this gets achieved. So, now, there's a, a few interesting implications from this. I mean, when you are in a situation like the one here on the right hand, on the left hand side, clearly working on non-computing things is very, very important, right? Because half of your energy budget is going there. Now, once you reach that, which I'll claim can be done with technology we know today, then you really need to focus on that big one. Right? You really need to just recommit to making electronics and computers, and that includes software and everything else, work much better. Right? Uh, that's the, the part of the equation you need to reduce. And for that, uh, the last thing I want to talk about today refers to the energy proportionality issue that uh, uh, Fred just alluded to. Thank you. And from an observation that data centers themselves are different than mobile devices in, in ways. And it's unfortunate because a lot of the low-power technology that's available today in circuits was developed for the mobile world. It wasn't developed for data centers. And it turns out that some of it actually applies. Some of it doesn't 
really uh, translate as well. And this is one of them. Uh, these devices, by the way, handhelds, hopefully if this talk is interesting at all, your devices are sleeping right now, right? Uh, and and, and uh, therefore, the technology behind them is such that when they are in this kind of sleep mode, they're consuming almost no energy, right, which is very good. And then when you're actually using them, you need responsiveness from, from, responsiveness from these devices because that's one of the main qualities of, of, of performance from them. So you want them to be efficient also in the small periods of time where they're using them. Data centers instead, if you look at lots of machines over a long period of time, are rarely at these two extremes of the usage spectrum. And this is a graph of like over 5,000 machines in one particular Google Data Center over six months, and we're averaging their CPU activity levels. And as you can see that as a group, those machines are rarely sort of running at full blast. They're actually relatively rarely, you can see that as well from this graph, completely idle like your cell phones are right now. And instead, they're spending a lot of that time in this middle range here you know, 20, 30% of their sort of full performance. Now, that's unfortunate for the following reason. The servers that are running there um, are very, very poor in terms of efficiency in that 30 percentile sort of range. So what I'm showing you here is a graph in red of a very efficient server today that's idling at somewhat 50% of its peak power. You see how embarrassing this is. A machine that's actually doing no work for you whatsoever, but just happens to be not sleeping, um, is consuming half of the power of that same machine working as hard as it could for you. Any server you got on the marketplace today is sort of actually a little bit worse than that. That idle power is probably closer to 60, 65% or so, if not more. What happens then is that if you're actually not doing a lot of work, the, the, the green curve is your energy efficiency curve for that machine. It's pretty depressing, right? In the 30th percentile range, which is where these big data sensors are running all the time, that machine is actually half as efficient as it was at peak. Right? It's also sad because a lot of the benchmarks that we have measure energy efficiency at peak, right? And uh, guess what? We're never there. Now, so here's this energy proportionality argument. Uh, it's ridiculously simple, it's almost embarrassing, but unlike handhelds and, and netbooks and all that, we need machines to work well also in that middle range. Right? And across the activity range, we want them to be very energy efficient. We know how to do the no work, no power. We're getting better at knowing what to do with lots of work, some power, and that middle range is sort of unfortunate. Right? We want computers to have a very wide activity range. We want them to go from you know, working at 1% of their peak activity levels and consuming about 1% of their power to 30 to 40, and sort of, in a way, the sort of, uh, that, that's, that, um, uh, that, that's more sort of proportional, I guess, in some way, to the energy uh, that it actually uses. Now, the inspiration I like to give people for that is that machines like that have been built before, right? Uh, in this case, this is from a physiology book that I borrowed, and it tells you uh, for some arbitrary categories that this particular book used how much energy an adult male spends in different kinds of activities, right? And as you can see that, we sleep at about you know, 65, 75 watts or so, but if we're axe chopping, we're really cranking there, like the sort of 1.5 kilowatts or so, and sort of everything in between. So this is clearly a machine that has sort of energy proportionality characteristics to them, and probably for good reasons. We need to build machines that actually have that behavior as well. 
And if we do, the potential is actually quite significant. And this is a study we did about a couple of years ago and published in the Computer Architecture Conference that said that had Google had machines with this kind of energy proportional behavior, our data centers could actually be using half the energy they use today. And actually, their peak power go down, too, for other sort of interesting reasons. Uh, and we get there by designing better components, and we get there by designing better software that can sort of better manage components that are not necessarily energy proportional. And I won't go into much detail about this, but this is something that can be achieved if we actually put some focus on it, both on the hardware and the software side of the equation. I will mention that Intel and the, computer and the processor companies actually are doing better at this than the memory guys and the, and the disks and the networks, for example, in general, which is sort of interesting. Uh, when you think about computer energy consumption, the first thing you think about is the CPU because it has a big, big heat sink sitting there somewhere. Uh, uh, the CPU is actually, is, you know, has, a, has a long way to go still, but they actually do better than the rest of the components in your system. So I'm happy to see that Intel is actually paying a lot of attention to this uh, and to the rest of the system of the platform as a whole these days. Because clearly, at some point, the, the CPU becomes so efficient that any further improvements on that particular component actually don't help the platform as a whole sort of that much. So in concluding, uh, it is definitely the case that we can't ignore the overall footprint of computing as a whole. And in that, servers are a smaller piece of that whole pie, but is one that actually is growing relatively fast. Uh, one thing that we don't realize in, uh, is, is how... Uh, uh, this whole trend towards server-side computing actually has a tremendous potential for increasing efficiencies in the way we deploy applications. And some kinds of applications probably can only be deployed in that model in, with any kind of efficiency. Um, I will claim that we actually know how to design already very efficient data centers. We can do much better at that. But the, 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 the key there, maybe it's less so sort of bleeding-edge research at this point is more sort of adoption of technology and practices that we already understand. Um, we, we need sort of to refocus uh, on to just making the components themselves actually have better usage characteristics. And in that sense, energy proportionality uh, is something that's particularly important for server-class machines and will actually be very useful for low-end uh, uh, applications as well. I will stop here, and maybe we'll take questions afterwards, Fred, or... I could take a couple of questions now if you had. Thank you very much. That's the problem with abrupt finishes. You're not primed to ask your questions. Can you hear me? Yeah, okay. Uh, so, uh, I guess you didn't have a chance to talk too much about it here, but I, I know we've talked before about the sort of importance of making software and algorithms more efficient. And, uh, you know, I was wondering if you might say something about, in your experience with, say, Internet applications, you know, what the potential is for sort of different models of, say, fine-grained parallelism or, you know, d different kinds of computational you know, methods right. in that area. Uh, so there's a, one really important thing is that uh, Justin mentioned, for example, how Intel is getting more performance these days not by making CPUs with faster clocks, right? The megahertz are not really going up, but by giving sort of more cores or more CPUs inside the same die. The most important thing software can do in the short term is actually build software that can take advantage of that, and that's a non-trivial problem, so that, that's one of them. But by and large, 
you know, a smart software engineer can make a big dent on efficiency, and that's something that when I talk to a computer science audience, I try to emphasize. I mean, if you looked at the remaining inefficiencies of data centers, right? If uh, everybody builds sort of Google-like data centers that are wasting only 20% of every watt that's actually consumed, at that point, a moderately competent software engineer that makes their program run, you know, 30% faster, right, to some extent in the same hardware and the same energy budget, is actually beating sort of the entire mechanical engineering industry, if you will, uh, to exaggerate the point, of course. Uh, so, you know, things like that, actually, you know, the, focusing on optimizations. And it is actually still true that a lot of the things that software engineers can do to just make their programs run faster naturally will make them run more efficiently as well, with a few exceptions. Hi, Luis. Um, on April 1st, when you made a lot of this public, yes. I know that there was an outpouring of um, thanks and appreciation from the rest of the uh, industry. And I just wonder if you could talk about what's happened since then. I know it's only seven weeks or something, but um, just talking about what has happened since then because it generated a lot of buzz. Um, let's see. I mean, for, for one of the main things that I think that it happened is that it raised the bar in a more explicit way. What we did on April 1st was more give people insight into how efficient we were we had already been, for six months prior to that, been publishing our data center efficiency numbers. And what we noticed that happened was that they actually were uh, so much lower than the rest of the industry that uh, you know, some people just decided not to believe us, which is you know, perhaps not unreasonable. Um, and, uh, and, but also, because we actually didn't give people much insight into how we did that, uh, they were at a loss as to, you know, to what an extent, you know, what they could do in their facilities sort of today. To, and we showed a couple of things there that I think were very useful. One of them is that there are no magic bullets, right? This is the kind of problem where uh, you actually have to work on 15, 20 different things in order to make a PUE of 2.0 to go down to sort of 1.2 or so. But if you actually focus on them, it does pay off. Uh, the other thing we showed was that even on facilities that we already had designed, there is opportunities for doing better in the way you run them over time. So we show graphs of our PUE over time, and just good management of the facility and good management of our computing resources. We showed facilities that started at 1.3 uh, uh, PUEs or so, that after a year and a half or so, were actually down to the 1.2, sort of 1.8 sort of range. So I think the most important thing that had happened is that it raised the bar. Uh, uh, we, and people actually could understand how we achieved the numbers we did. And, and so sort of in that regard, I think it strengthened our message that, you know, we, we are doing this, this is how we are doing this. It can be done. And because it's being done not as a research prototype or a demonstration, this is our data centers, our business, and we are, you know, a profitable business, thankfully. So it, it makes people believe that it's actually not inconsistent to be a profitable business in this area and run a very efficient uh, computing infrastructure. Thank you. Thank you very much. You know, one thing I wanted to uh, say up front is that uh, um, there's actually a huge uh, disparity in the energy consumption, the power consumption of the embedded devices compared with the data centers. And however, the, the position I actually would take is that uh, some of the interesting trade-offs 
and in particular trade-offs between the uh, power and the energy and uh, the uh, performance is actually uh, quite interesting at the, you know, at the particular scale that you uh, look at. Um, I've spent quite a lot of time working on sensors and embedded networks or sensor networks as you may uh, know. And uh, you know, a lot of things that uh, you do there is to make sure those devices are running as long as possible for months and years since they are actually you know, actually embedded in the physical environment, collecting data and do certain things. Uh, however, on the other hand, as you just heard from the earlier talk, the data centers with hundreds of thousands of machines, the power envelope is actually uh, much bigger and they typically actually consume something like a 10 and a 20 of a megawatts right, per, per, uh, per uh, data center. So you're actually talking about uh, many orders of uh, magnitude in the power uh, uh, difference. Um, however, some of the trade-offs, which I'm going to actually, uh, you know, um, talk to you about in the next few slides, are actually uh, quite similar. In particular, there is the issue about, uh, you know, if you try to actually put some of the components and uh, the uh, parts of your computing fabric into sleep, then how do you deal with the trade-off between the uh, energy consumption and uh, the responsiveness among uh, other system uh, performance metrics? And uh, this is actually one of the uh, device stack that, that we built in the embedded space. And this is a, a Lego-like uh, modules. Basically, the idea is that uh, you have these uh, bricks. And uh, these are actually very small. You can see that uh, at the bottom, there are three uh, AA batteries. So that's the size you're talking about. And you have different bricks. You have a different process of bricks that, that they have very different power characteristics. Some of them are very small. Um, a 60-bit processor, and some of them are ARM7. And you also have different radio bricks and also storage bricks. And the idea is that uh, you can actually do these uh, Lego-like, uh, you know, a mix and a match, configure a hardware stack for a particular problem. And also there's a very interesting problem of the software. That is that uh, given a particular op uh, a application, how do you optimize across these components such that you actually get the optimal energy consumption while still meeting the uh, application of performance requirements for the SLAs. And uh, so, you know, some of the things that uh, we've been uh, working on, and I get some really interesting results, is that uh, you know, how do you optimally map these different application and components into these hardware um, parts? And uh, in particular, you have these different processors, different memory hierarchies, and the different states that these devices could be into, that is the power states, you know, whether it's deep sleep, or it's actually a standby, or it's a high performance state. And you can do this at the design time when you're putting together software, or you can also do it dynamically at the runtime. Now obviously the complication is that uh, often the time you actually don't know the, what the workload is going to look like. In, the, in this embedded space, you have these uh, sensor data coming in, and you actually don't know how often those data are going to come in, you know, when there's a fire alarm is going to go off, right? You actually don't have that uh, prediction. So you need to be actually very dynamic and be able to adaptively put in those devices into the appropriate state so you can optimize for the, uh, for the energy use. Um, now, on the data side, and you have a similar problem that arise from that. And uh, you know, this is, uh, this is you know, a pretty, pretty typical uh, data center in a conventional construction. And uh, you actually have these uh, floor, uh, these are cooling vents, and you have the servers that actually takes the cool air, goes through the server, and pump out the hot air on the other side. So that's the typical, um, you know, in, in many uh, data centers, the construction. Uh, and uh, the problem there is that uh, many data centers are provisioned for the peak usage. And because the workload that these data centers serve actually fluctuates, 
because uh, you know, at night, people actually don't probably spend that much time querying and sending the, uh, do the search or other things. And uh, during the peak, you actually have uh, many more uh, user loads. So you actually have these diurnal, you know, these, uh, these, uh, flow, uh, these uh, workload patterns. And also on the, uh, on the facility side, you also have this distribution of the temperature, which uh, sometimes they actually make this uh, cooling very inefficient. In earlier talk, in some of these modular container data center, actually, in fact, is an excellent way of reducing some of those temperature gradient. And one of the things that we did in the last couple of years is actually have a research project called the data center genome. You know, just like a human genome, that we thought that a large facility like this ought to actually have all these characteristics where if you be able to map out, you can do a fair, fair amount of optimizations with that. And, uh, at the core of this is basically to have lots of sensors that embed into data center. Some of them are hardware sensors, some of them are software sensors. The hardware sensors are the ones that actually are embedded you know, around these machines that sense the temperatures, humidities, and as we know that if we don't have the visibility to where the hotspots are, then the cooling system, for example, would be quite inefficient because it's try to actually just cool down the hotspots to avoid the alarm. And uh, the, uh, you see some of those sensors that's shown there. Uh, in fact, uh, we actually put together these sensor devices. What, you know, one of the objectives is to make them uh, very easy to install and a very low cost uh, per unit. So I actually have uh, one of those devices with me, and uh, we actually had them manufactured about 10,000 of those. Uh, you know, once we designed this, it's pretty easy to send it to some uh, uh, shops in uh, Shenzhen, China, and they can get tens of those, uh, 10,000 of those uh, uh, manufacturer. So a lot of them are actually currently deployed across the Microsoft uh, data centers to actually monitor the temperature and the humidity. Now we also have uh, sensors that monitor the, uh, uh, the, the other parts of the data center and some of them are software sensors that are actually looking at the, the uh, traffic uh, over the network, looking at the, the machine states and uh, looking at the, the uh, cooling systems and other things and try to actually collectively uh, try to figure out uh, what the cooling system is doing, is it responding to certain workloads in the data center, and how do we close the control loop to uh, optimize for that? Um, you saw the, uh, you know, one of the, uh, here, you saw the, uh, some of those uh, uh, real-time mappings of the uh, data center operations. You know, this is the uh, typical, so like the, uh, the racks are arranged into these rows, and then there's multiple rows in this uh, large data center uh, loom called the colos. And uh, these are colors representing what's the power consumption, what's the workload, and what's the computer utilizations. And this actually gives, gives the uh, operators a very direct dashboard and visibility into how well your data center is running. And uh, now because of the embedded sensors that we have across those uh, racks, in fact, you can actually do a, a real-time um, inspection of uh, where the hotspots are. So this is the... Uh, um, the, uh, in one of those uh, hot aisle and the cold aisle construction, you have the cold aisle where the temperature is actually cooler compared with the hot aisle. You also can look at the, how the temperature actually distributed. Now, one thing that's interesting is that uh, given that the temperature distribution and given the fact that these machines are all running workloads, and some of these workloads might be different from the other machines, can you actually optimize both the comp computing part as well as the cooling part so that you actually use the least amount of energy to cool that? So this is actually some of the very interesting work that, uh, that we've, been, uh, we've been looking at. Um, now, let me actually give you a concrete example of uh, some of the things we did with the software so that uh, you can actually uh, uh, dramatically reduce the amount of power. And at the same time, 
without affecting the performance, right? I mean, it's always actually useful to think about, you know, these machines are up to serve the particular needs. And if you want to reduce the power, and you also want to make sure that what's the impact that has on the performance of your internet services. So in this particular case, uh, we actually look at a, uh, a large internet service called the uh, MSN Messenger. And uh, the, uh, the number of users at any given time log on to Messenger is actually quite large. We're talking about tens of millions of users, uh, concurrent users, that's uh, actively using, uh, using the services and maintaining a connection there. And uh, the way that uh, the Messenger works is that uh, you know, if a user actually wanted to uh, log into a Messenger to talk to someone, it sent a request. And then there's a, there's a, so like a scheduler or dispatching uh, unit, which basically say, you know, given this particular unit, I'm going to decide to pick a particular machine to serve this. So it's going to pick one of those machines called the connection servers, or CS, and then that machine actually going to be dedicated to uh, serve that. Well, actually, it's going to serve many other users as well, but this is the one that actually deemed to be the most appropriate at a given time. So you can actually see that in order to serve a particular communication purpose using a MSN Messenger, actually quite a number of those devices is going to be used across the data center. You have these connection servers that's going to talk to the backend, looking at the credentials of the user, making sure this person actually have the, uh, is a legitimate users, and getting the list of his buddies or her buddies uh, you know, fetched from the address book. So all these things are concurrently happening in the background before a connection actually is established, and then you maintain that, uh, that connection. Now, one thing to notice is that uh, Given those uh, you know, tens of millions of the users that's running on these, uh, on these machines, and if you look at the workload, and it's very interesting that uh, even if you think about a worldwide workload, right? You know, we're not just talking about US, we're talking about Korea, you know, all sorts of these uh, parts of the world that the user actually using the services. Uh, you actually see, uh, this is actually the, uh, we have uh, you know, lots of machines in the data center dedicated to this service, and they are partitioning into those clusters of a 60 machine each. So let's look at one of the uh, particular cluster. You actually look at the, these uh, pretty interesting and repeatable these uh, load patterns. And this is about one day worth of uh, uh, 24 hours. So you can see Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and so on, right? And actually over the weekend, you see a little bit drop. Um, and uh, so the question is really that uh, you know, if you actually provision your data center resource for the peak, and then during the time of this 12, what are you going to do with those machines? One is to actually reprovision the machine for other services, or another way is actually perhaps to power down those machines or turn those machines into a very low power state. In the previous talk, you, uh, Luis just, you know, mentioned this excellent point, is that you know, if the machine is turned on but without serving anything, it still consumes a fair amount of uh, energy. So what you like to do is to really power down or repurpose the resources for other, um, for other uses. Now, this is actually uh, pretty tricky to do um, you know, for several reasons. Uh, one is that uh, if you want to actually repurpose the resources for other uses or power down the machine, and you have to actually figure out that uh, how do you consolidate those workloads and then move some of those workloads to machines um, you know, that, uh, that, that need to be turned on, maintained. And, uh, the services we are talking about in this case is actually stateful. That is that, uh, you know, it's not something you can shut down and instantly ramp up again. And uh, they maintain a certain state where you somehow need to actually continue and, uh, and onto some other machines. Um, you know, that's, that's one of those uh, challenges. The other is that uh, even though you're looking at those patterns and you say, gosh, 
if I actually know exactly at any given time how, how many machines I use, I just allocate that amount of machine, I'm all set. But the real world is a lot more complicated. You know, what if actually there is a news uh, you know, breakout, and all of a sudden there's a lot of users that come on to this message and tell friends about it. So you actually have some perturbations and things that you are not predict. Um, you, you cannot predict based on those uh, histories. So what we really like to have is uh, to be able to allocate just enough resources for the energy purpose, for performance purpose, but also leave some buffer just in case that uh, lots of users come in and try to actually uh, uh, allocate the resources for, for such unpredictable uh, purposes. So uh, you know, we're actually looking at a number of those uh, techniques. I'm not going to go into details, uh, but uh, you know, one way is to say, Given the allocated number of machines uh, for serving that load, and you can have one way to do this is to actually try to smooth the load across those machines, and this is typically called the load balance. And the other one is actually try to skew the load towards the tail at the head part of those machines, serving just up to the capacity, and then leaving some of the tails that's available for the uh, for the additional services. Now, one thing that I want to point out, uh, for, you know. You don't need to actually really read the axis, but just to actually you know, give you what these axis represents. Um, this is the power, how much uh, energy uh, it's, going to, uh, it's going to use. And this is actually the performance hit. So that is that uh, and if you go to the right, that means that you got actually a lot more SIDs. SIDs is actually basically the server-initiated disconnection. That means uh, you know, further right, the worse the performance is. And that's the kind of uh, you know, predo curves that we are looking at. That is that uh, you, know, you can either actually get a very energy efficient, but at, at, at one point, we're actually going to get a lot of those server-initiated disconnection, or you can get a you know, very uh, energy inefficient, but you actually have uh, you know, very, very good performance. And what you really like to find is actually on this curve, find a place, the knee, where you actually got a fair amount or majority of the energy saving without hitting the, uh, without hitting the performance uh, uh, bottleneck. And uh, so this is the study we did on the, uh, on the window, um, the uh, MSN messenger. And uh, one thing which we discovered is that uh, using this technique, you can just save up to about 30, 30, 33% of the energy without actually hitting the, uh, incur the additional uh, performance penalty. So, you know, one of my uh, dream is really to actually uh, putting some of those energy and the visibility into the energy use into the next version of uh, Visual Studio. And uh, as I said earlier, that uh, software can play a really big role in uh, improving the energy efficiency of all the IT equipment. And uh, many developers in the world are actually using tools, you know, Visual Studio, and there's a bunch of other tools to actually design and uh, deploy the programs. And we often actually look at, for example, how fast the program runs and how much space it takes, right? These are the traditional way of thinking about the complexities of program. What I really like is to have a meter, like a joule meter, you know, the, a very visual representation of how much your program is going to burn, how many joules are going to burn when you actually write your program. And uh, furthermore, I want to expose some of those knobs to the program so that when they actually write a particular loop or do a particular construction of the program, it says that, gosh, this is actually less energy efficient. If you actually change the loop in a particular way, here's how much joule it's going to burn. So we actually picked the name Joule Meter as a project uh, actually uh, two years ago when we started this, is precisely to try to get a very fine granular uh, visibilities into the program that you're writing, and also try to use the same uh, set of techniques for runtime uh, optimization. So if you think about it, right, you actually at one end, you know, you have uh, all these codes, and uh, you have the different workloads that these uh, programs are going to serve, 
And what the meter does is that uh, it takes the test workload and it actually generates a detailed profile in terms of uh, how much energy consumed by um, each of the hardware components and also the software activities that's being executed on those components. Um, the kind of thing you could do with those is uh, one is actually to do the kind of thing such as uh, you know, the compiler could actually be a little smarter about uh, you know, what these uh, different uh, consequences are and try to actually optimize for that. The runtime could actually use that to scheduling and give a policy which can trade, for example, the, the quality of the services with the energy. And uh, we actually had, uh, had uh, developed a number of models for different uh, machines. And uh, the, the core idea is the following, that you know, if you be able to actually gather these events and counters, and uh, then you should be able to build a model and mapping from those events to the power consumptions of these different components. And there are actually well-understood modeling techniques that allows you to build a very robust uh, uh, models for that. Um, and uh, of course, you know, the proof of the pudding is to actually see how well these techniques works. And uh, just to give you a sense that uh, you know, this is actually shows the, over time the different uh, you know, the energy profiles of the measured the energy profile using the uh, models as well as actually the uh, ground truthing. And here is the actual breakdown of the different components over that period executing a particular set of applications, the CPUs, the memory, the disks, and how they actually, uh, the power varies over time. Um, now, of course, the really interesting part is that uh, if you have multiple things that are running on a set of machines, and what you like, really like to tease out is that, you know, which application you're using, which, uh, uh, how much energy, and which components are being stressed. And this is actually typically you know, it's a very useful thing to understand if you want to allocate those things and consolidate onto these, uh, these uh, virtual machines. Um, so to conclude, what I think is really exciting, you know, when we, we think about the energy efficiency and the uh, software techniques is that uh, uh, the opportunities actually exist at many different levels, right? You're talking about, you know, the hardware part at the, at the system levels, at the application levels. Um, the key is really to uh, expose many of those uh, optimization knobs and also give people the visibility that if you actually tune some of those knobs, what consequences uh, are you going to see? Um, one thing I'm actually a really a strong believer of this, uh, this is that uh, we ought to actually think about energy as a first-class citizen and think about energy complexity in design systems, in particular design the computing system. As I mentioned earlier, that uh, in addition to think about uh, the algorithmic com complexity, such as uh, space and the time, we have to think about uh, you know, what's the energy, uh, the, uh, the footprint, and what's the trade-off of energy and the performance when you write a piece of code. And I think uh, this is, uh, uh, is likely to be one of the, those things that computer science ought to actually look at uh, in the next uh, decade. With that, uh, I'll be happy to take uh, questions. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.